will make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. Our text today is verses 18 through 22 in a message entitled, Jesus and the question that Jesus asked, who do you say I am? J.R. Briggs wrote an article on the importance of questions in preaching and teaching. He noted that along the banks of the Skykill River just north of the famed Philadelphia Art Museum is an often unnoticed plaza containing four 12-foot-high granite statues. One of the statues is of particular interest because it is strikingly counterintuitive. A preacher in his preaching robe is standing there with his mouth open, and the title of the particular statue is etched into the base, Preacher, He Guided Our Ways. What's peculiar about it is that the preacher isn't speaking. Rather, he's leaning forward with his knees slightly bent and his head turned sideways with his hands cupping both of his ears and he's listening. Now, there are many areas of emphasis that we could focus on in the life and the ministry of Jesus. We've already done so in several areas as we've gone through these chapters in Luke. We could focus on the miracles of Jesus, and they're very important. They're central to authenticating both the message and the messenger. We could focus on his teaching and his proclamation of the good news, central to salvation. We could focus on his power to cast out demons or his power over nature. But an area of particular interest is the use of questions by Jesus. In fact, Jesus asked a lot of questions. And I've not counted each one myself, but I read that there are over 300 questions in one form or the other in the Gospels that are posed by Jesus there are 183 questions that are asked of Jesus, and of those 183 questions, he only answered three of them directly. This extensive use of questions by our Lord would not have been unusual in the day that he lived in. According to the rabbinic tradition, it was assumed that the more questions were asked, the more was learned. Jesus was concerned with both the communication of information, and the transformation of lives. Questions are important and they capture our attention because they help us to participate in the learning process. And there's no more important question than the central one that Jesus asked in this passage. I pick up reading in verse 18. The Bible says, And it happened as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? This is kind of a prefatory question, if you will. Verse 19. So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and 
be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. There are many important spiritual questions, but this is the most significant of all. Jesus asking, who do you say I am? The identity of Jesus is of central importance to Luke's gospel overall. In the birth narrative, the angels announce the birth of Jesus, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, made it clear that he was not the Christ, but he pointed people to him. The demons knew the identity of Jesus as the Holy One and as the Son of God. The issue came to the forefront when Jesus forgave the paralytic man's sins and the scribes and the Pharisees reasoned among themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? The same question came up when Jesus forgave the sinful woman. When Jesus calmed the storm, his disciples were amazed and they said, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And then Herod Antipas asked the question, Who is this man about whom I hear such things? Now there's a lot of confusion today about who Jesus is, who the Christ is. For some, he's nothing more than uh, a profane exclamation point in the use of language, where God is dishonored and the name of God is taken in vain. For some who have unbiblical theology, they think that Jesus is more concerned with affirming people's sinful lifestyle choices than he is with the salvation of people. Some see Jesus as a great teacher, but yet not the Son of God, which in and of itself is contradictory because he claimed to be one with God, to be God in the flesh. Some think of Jesus as the originator of a religion or a religious system, but not necessarily the Savior. So there's a lot of confusion out there about who Jesus is and the identity of who the Christ is uh, as presented to us in the Bible. Now, according to the synoptic view of this event, it took place near Caesarea Philippi. The region is situated near one of the sources of the Jordan River, uh, and with the 9,232-foot uh, Mount Hermon in the background, which is snow-covered most of the year, providing the backdrop to this particular circumstance, Jesus begins to dialogue with his disciples when they came to him. And he asked the question, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the old prophets has risen again. This answer is remarkably similar uh, to the question that Herod asked, as I've already referenced. And then Jesus goes a step further and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Matthew's gospel records the Christ, the son of the living God. Mark's gospel simply records the words, you are the Christ. Now, I think to fully appreciate Peter's answer, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. One commentator wrote, we should recollect that they saw no royal dignity about our Lord, 
no crown, no army, no earthly power. They only saw a man who often had nowhere to sleep at night. And yet it was at this time and under these circumstances that Peter boldly declared his belief that Jesus is the Christ of God. Truly, this was a great faith. It was mingled, no doubt, with ignorance and imperfection. But such as it was, it was a faith that stood alone. The person who possessed this faith was a remarkable man, far ahead of the age in which he lived. Jesus wanted his identity to be clear in the minds and the hearts of his disciples. He was preparing them for the mission that was to follow. They had already been sent out on their initial mission, but they needed to have confidence that this Christ who was standing in front of them was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. And the, the phrase, the Christ of God, indicates to us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The title Christ, meaning Messiah, comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one. It corresponds to the Greek word Christos, also meaning anointed one. So anytime in the New Testament, when you see Christ, think Messiah. The Jews had been conditioned to expect the conquering and reigning political deliverer. They expected the Messiah to come and to set up uh, his kingdom on earth. They expected him to come in great power and conquer all of Israel's enemies as David had done long ago. They expected him to usher in a golden era of peace, prosperity, and independence. But instead, Jesus came in humility as the suffering servant to inaugurate a kingdom that would outlast anything that the earth has to offer. And at this moment of truth, God burns the identity of the Messiah into the hearts of these men and essentially says to them, salvation is standing before you. Now, I want us to think in these moments that we have together about the identity of Jesus as Messiah, and I want us to think about how it relates to the three main roles or offices that are spoken of in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to use this concept of prophet, priest, and king from the Old Testament with the overlay of the New Testament and see the Messiah through that lens from Scripture. Prophets had the responsibility to speak God's word to the people, both in foretelling the truth as well as foretelling the things to come. Some of the prophets also demonstrated power to heal and to perform miracles. Priests served as mediators between people and God. They led in worship. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were a temporary bridge of access from the people to God in anticipation of the once and for all high priest. Kings ruled over the people as God's agents and representatives. They were expected to observe the laws and to defend the nation from aggression and generally to rule over the people. Christ fulfilled all of these. And in fact, Christ was the only one who was capable of fulfilling all of these. And in the Old Testament, when someone was appointed to any of these offices or roles, they were anointed by pouring oil over their head. 
the term Messiah means anointed one, the one who is anointed by God to fulfill his purposes. So the first aspect of this is that the Messiah came as prophet. The Messiah came as prophet. The title of prophet is used numerous times in the Gospels when people referred to Christ. And also, Christ alluded to himself as a prophet. But the precursor to this was in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 and 16, there's a promise coming that there would be one like Moses, but yet who was greater than Moses, who would come on behalf of God. And this would be the Christ. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired from the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The prediction was that God would raise up a prophet like Moses who would come before God, and both Peter and Stephen spoke of Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of this prophet. Christ is the prophet like Moses who must be listened to, and yet Christ is greater than Moses because he is one with God, he is God in the flesh, and he was eternally with the Father. Now, what is the role of a prophet? What are some things that a prophet carries out in obedience to the will of God? A prophet speaks on behalf of God. In fact, they would preface their statements by saying, thus says the Lord. The source of truth from the prophet was God and not people. Jesus spoke in these same terms in John chapter 7 and verse 16. He said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. In the high priestly prayer, he said in John 17 and verse 8, I gave them the words that you gave me. So Jesus was both the embodiment of the word of God as the living word, and he was also the one who proclaimed the word of God to the people as revelation from God. And Christ provides the clearest and fullest exposition of God himself. A prophet also speaks against sin, calling people to repentance, leading people to the point of forgiveness. You remember when Jesus teaching began, his public ministry began, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was speaking to the people the need to repent, the need to get right with God, the need to receive forgiveness from God. A prophet also had the ability to heal and to perform miracles. Uh, you remember Jesus uh, in his many miracles, presented the power of God to the people. The reason that God gave his earthly prophets that ability, again, was to authenticate both the messenger and the message. And Jesus did all of that in his ministry. And then a prophet speaks of what is to come in the future. Jesus told the disciples here in verse 22 of Luke chapter 9 of his pending death and his resurrection. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He foretold the betrayal of Judas, Peter's 
denial three times. He predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit, the persecution of believers, and he also anticipated the things that are still to come. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, the disciples asked Jesus about the things that were going to come at the end of the age. And how did Jesus reply to them? He said, you should anticipate wars and rumors of wars. There will be nations that will rise against nations. There will be kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes. And all of these things are the beginning of sorrows. And then Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. The Messiah came as prophet. The second aspect is that the Messiah came as priest. Priests served as spiritual servants of the people. They acted as a temporary bridge between the people and God. They were to perform the sacred duties as well as present the sacred truth. And the priest had the responsibility of serving as mediators between people and God. Now, the way they exercised their mediatorial responsibility before God is that they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, there were various levels and orders of the priest who had different responsibilities, but there was only one high priest. The high priest represented the people once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go behind the thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and there he would offer the blood of a goat on the golden mercy seat that sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The blood atoned for or covered the sins of the people for another year, and yet the high priest had to repeat the sacrifice year after year. The Bible says ultimately that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. He came as our high priest to offer himself, not the blood of an animal, but his own life for us as the once and for all sacrifice. Listen to the way Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3 puts it. God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the mediator between God and man as the high priest. High priests also identify with the weaknesses of the people. Any temptation that we experience, any difficulty, any challenge, any obstacle, Christ identifies with that in our weaknesses. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as the high priest represents us before God, one of the things that he does on our behalf is he makes intercession for us. In fact, the scripture says that he lives to make intercession 
for us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24 and 25 says, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The sacrificial death of Christ is at the heart of his work as the high priest. And because of his finished work, his once and for all sacrifice, we are reconciled to God through repentance and faith. We are justified and declared righteous in Christ because of what he's done for us. And I think if we take this a step further, we'll see that priests were also a preview of what was to come in the kingdom of God. We now are a kingdom of priests. We have access to God through the high priest. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have access to God, and we are a kingdom of servants who are doing the work and carrying out the will of God. Now, it's important to note that priests on the earth were temporary, but Christ as priest is eternal. Now, we're going to do a little bit deeper dive here, so pay careful attention and make some notes if you need to so you can go back and read this for yourself. But Hebrews chapter 6 indicates that Christ was a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you say, why was Melchizedek significant in the Scripture? The Messianic prophecy in Psalm 110 refers to the Messiah's priesthood as eternal according to the order of Melchizedek. In Matthew 22, Jesus debated the Pharisees and Jesus cited Psalm 110 and verse 1, stating that the Messiah is David's Lord in that verse. If we go back a little bit further to Genesis 14, it's the historical account of the rescue of Lot. And following that, Abraham meets Melchizedek, who's referred to as the king of Salem. He's described as a priest of the Most High God. His name means king of righteousness. And he is also referred to as a king of peace. Hebrews 7 and verse 3 indicates that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So here's the point. By citing Melchizedek as a type, it shows that Christ as the high priest is superior as the once and for all high priest and as the eternal king. And that takes me to the third aspect of this message, and that is the Messiah came as king. Ultimately, the people of Israel were to look to God as their king. But you remember they weren't satisfied with that initially. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They had to have an earthly king. They thought that was going to solve their issues. Well, as it turns out, it actually complicated their issues, but God permitted that to take place. And he permitted it for there to be times of peace and prosperity and 
welfare of the nation. And I think the office of king is best illustrated uh, by David. And God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 26, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The coming of the Messiah as the king was anticipated. The angel Gabriel told Mary, Jesus will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. The king has the function of ruling over his people. Revelation presents the Christ as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It was Christ who issued the great commission, and he had been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All power belonged to him. And the king, in his finished work, is triumphant. He's won the victory once and for all. Now, another messianic reference in Psalm 2 emphasizes the kingship of the Messiah. He's always been the eternal king, but Psalm 2 discusses his kingship as the God-man in the covenant of grace. And interestingly, Psalm 2 is quoted four times, twice in Acts and twice in Hebrews. Portions of Psalm 2 are also alluded to in Revelation. There are enemies against God and his anointed one, yet God has set his king over Zion, and Christ will destroy all enemies with a rod of iron, and all are blessed who take refuge in him. But we have a hope that is even still to come in the future because the promise of Scripture is that the king will return for his people. In fact, the theme of the return of the king is one of the strongest promises in all the Bible. Most Christians are more familiar with the first coming of Christ. But did you know that references to the second coming of Christ outnumber references to the first by an eight to one count. There are literally hundreds of verses in the New Testament that reference in one form or the other the second coming of Christ. The coming of the Messiah or the return of the Messiah is referenced in 17 Old Testament books. And in seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament, there is some type of emphasis on the return of Christ. Jesus himself, referred to his return 21 times. And that is significant for us to understand. Listen to what the scripture says in Revelation 19, beginning of verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And his name is called the word of God, verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ did not come to overthrow Roman rule or force, as some had thought. He came to rule in the hearts of people. Christ is king, and yet his kingdom is not ultimately of this world. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. We are citizens of a kingdom that will last forever, that is assured of 
in the Word of God. And in the meantime, we are pilgrims in a foreign land, making our way as pilgrims toward that city whose builder and maker is God. And in the meantime, we anticipate the return of the Christ. Just as he promised he would come, he will come again. And the reign of Christ over all things is absolute and it is inviolable. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks and answers the question, what offices does Christ execute? The answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation, he is the mediator. He takes his office. One writer put it this way, a prophet, a priest, and a king are essential needs for man whose sin necessarily separates him from God and precludes him from approaching God on his own. With the fall came a tragic and drastic change in man and his relationship with the Lord. Iniquity separated man from God and sin hid God's face from man. When man fell, he lost the knowledge of God that must be renewed if a man is to be saved from sin. So man needs a prophet to reveal God. When man fell, he lost the righteousness and holiness in which he was created. So man needs a priest to reconcile him to God. When man fell, he became prey to the enemy of his soul who had power to hold him subject to bondage. Man needs a king to reign, to subdue every enemy of his soul. What man needed, God in his wondrous and amazing grace provided in the person of his own son, his and our Messiah. I can say to you confidently today in conclusion, Jesus is the Christ of God. And we need to know this personally. If we know him as the Christ of God, the Messiah, and we know his forgiveness, his reconciliation of us to God, then we have a great hope and a wonderful future. But if we don't know him, and it's only in our head and not in our hearts, we've fallen short of a full understanding of who he truly is. And how you answer this question makes all the eternal difference. So I'd say to you today as we come toward a close of this service and a time of prayer, if you know Jesus as the Christ of God, as your Savior, then thank him for what he's done on your behalf that he was willing to mediate between you and God, that he was willing to give his life and to pour out his blood as the perfect sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and thank him for your salvation. But if you are hearing this message either now or later and you don't know Jesus as the Christ of God, he stands ready to receive you into his presence. If you be willing today, if you be willing as you hear this message to turn from your sins and turn to the Savior and receive him by faith, he will save your soul. And then you can begin an eternal journey of an experience with God to know him in the power of the gospel, in the truth of the resurrection in Christ. He'll receive you if you'll only trust him. Let's bow our heads together as we pray just for a moment. Father, we thank you for this time you blessed us with today. I'm grateful for the clarity of your word. 
this question that Jesus asked remains the eternally most significant question that any of us could be asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus, you are Savior and Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we honor you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who can say that with confidence and with assurance and know you as their own. But I pray for anyone who would hear this message that has not entered from, uh, into life from death, that's not been forgiven of their sins, that doesn't know Christ. I pray that they would trust in him by faith, turning from their sins and turning to the Savior. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We pray your blessings on the conclusion of this service and on the week ahead. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.